Welcome to the Run Run Live 4.0 podcast, where we plumb the daily adventure of endurance sports. Let us seize this precious moment together and squeeze the life from it like a golden lemon sent to us fresh today from the emissaries of the gods. Terribly happy guy Then he ate a moldy pumpkin pie Then he thought that he just couldn't die So Ned, he laughed so hard and made him cry Made him Hello, good morning, good afternoon, good evening, depending on where you find yourself physically located on the space-time continuum relative to the orbit tilt and spin of this muddy rock. This is Chris, your host, and this is episode 3- no wait, it isn't, it's 4-316 of the Run Run Live podcast. And why 4-316? Well, my current numbering scheme, topology, reflects the different incarnations of the Run Run Live podcast over the last seven or so years. Some of these incarnations were due to new or failed technology, some because I just felt like an inflection point crept up on me, like a stern but silent, stealthy thief in the night. So this is version four of the podcast and the 316th official episode. Anywho. The current version comes out every two weeks. I try to get them out on Fridays because I know most runners have their long runs on the weekends. And I try to keep it under an hour in length so it fits into your workout. And I cover topics related to endurance sports that interest me. I interview people related to this. And I salt in some life motivation and balance topics just to assist you on your journey. In today's show, we chat with Matt Crean who has produced a graphic novel around the Prefontaine story. And I was interested in this because, at least for me, endurance sports is a highly emotional and impactful endeavor. But this epicness tends to translate poorly into communication mediums, such as film. So I wanted to talk to Matt about that. In the first section, we'll go into more detail on water bottles than you ever imagined could exist And in section two, I'm going to give you the race report on my first Olympic distance triathlon that I haven't done yet. It's actually this weekend. But through the power of visualization, I'm going to tell you how I win my age group. I've had a great couple weeks of training since we last talked. I feel strong. I ran a two-hour trail run in the big rainstorm a couple weeks back and managed not to run into anything, hit my head, or fall down. This past weekend was our 4th of July holiday. I went down to my house on Cape Cod, and I got some excellent volume of training in. Thursday, I biked down to the Chatham Light, uh, Chatham Lighthouse, right on the ocean, and I ran an hour and a half 
out and back on the beach, and then I biked home. And I got a little bit turned around on the ride home, and the whole session ended up being close to two and a half hours worth of brick. I always get lost on Cape Cod because it all looks the same to me. It's like those old Flintstones cartoons where they just repeat the background scenery to save money. The Cape has no landmarks. It's the same scrub oak and pine and cottages repeated on an infinite loop. But it's a beautiful place. I love it down there. Saturday, I did a one-hour ocean open water swim across Pleasant Bay in Harwich, and it was low tide. And I had some challenges trying to stay out of the boat moorings, not get run over, but also not scrape my nose against the horseshoe crabs on the bottom in the shallows. And then I hopped on my Fujisan and spun out a two-hour bike ride on the rail trail. And the rail trail was nuts on Saturday. It was jammed with holiday traffic. And I was just trying to go for an easy spin, catch up on some podcasts. Whenever I passed a real cyclist, they felt compelled to catch me and ride with me and talk to me. And I guess when some old dude on a rusty Fuji passes you on the rail trail, you have to justify your roadie credentials and catch up to him. And then on Sunday, I went out for a two and a half hour long run in the heat of the day, and it was a bit rough, but good preparation for this weekend's triathlon. So yeah, around, I don't know, eight hours of endurance training over the weekend, plus yard work, and I got to spend some quality time with my wife. Wonderful weekend. I also patched up all the small tears that have been appearing in my wetsuit as I use it more. I have a can of that uh, seal cement, which is this viscous black goop like roofing tar. It's like that stuff they use up here in the northeast to fix the cracks in the roads. It works great on wetsuits. I made a bit of a mess with it. My application is not going to earn any artistic awards, but functionally, it does the trick. That sure sounds like a lot of work, a lot of activity as I read through it. I get the sense that sometimes people think I'm a workaholic, and I don't think so. I think that that moniker applies to people who are out of balance in the way they pursue their work. They subsume all aspects of their life to the mindless pursuit of work, mindless because they work for the sake of work and not because that work aligns with some purpose. Workaholics try to lose themselves in the work because they're afraid. They're afraid to confront themselves, to look in the mirror and to have to see themselves. And they use work and struggle as a mask or a drug to justify not engaging in life because it scares them. It's an addiction like any other addiction, and it allows the addict to abdicate their free will to some other power. I'm active. I'm kinetic. I don't particularly like idle time. And I believe there's something worthy in spending yourself fully in a noble cause, but I'm not addicted to work. I drive my own boat, and I'm accountable for the direction of that boat. I'm okay with the chaos of the ocean and the random winds of change that buffet upon it. That's what I would like you to think about. Why do you do what you do? How does it align with your purpose? How could you rebalance your life to find more positive stress? And I'll tell you a secret. The times when I'm most at peace, when I sleep soundly, are those times when I've executed well and fully some work that makes a difference to me. And for that, I am grateful. On with the show. It is when we learn to leave our comfort zone that we find ourselves communing with our inner strength. 
Water bottle deep dive. Let's stay hydrated. I had an interesting interaction and a bit of an aha moment recently. One of the things I do that I think helps my flexibility in endurance sports is I carry a water bottle in one hand. And this seems like a simple enough pretense. I've been doing this since I started marathon training almost 20 years ago. I didn't think it needed instructions. I tell people to consider learning how to carry a water bottle if they're training for a marathon distance event because it has some advantages. And a runner recently took me up on this advice. He bought a water bottle and tried running with it on a 10K training run. And then I got the plaintiff message from that this person, I don't think this is going to work. What happened? I thought the concept was simple, but I guess I need to be more specific. It turns out this, this person acquired some giant monstrosity of a bottle for their first try, and it was just too much. Let's talk about some tips on water bottle carrying if you're game to try it out. First, what size or type of bottle should you get to run with? Since I've been doing this for so long, I can carry almost anything and almost any size or type of bottle. And there are times when I'm in the Southwest on a trip that I'll bring a liter bottle, which is pretty big for running. That's two, two and a half, 2.2, two and a half pounds of water in one hand. And honestly, though, this is the outlier. When I grab a liter bottle in Nevada, I know I'm going to drink it fairly quickly and I won't be carrying the full thing for long. I also know that I'm out for a slow, low effort, and that's more manageable. When I was ultra-marathon running, I would carry two 24-ounce bottles, one in each hand. If I'm racing hard like a 5K or something short, I won't carry a bottle at all because I don't need it and it will get in the way. 99% of the time, I'm grabbing a normal size bottle, somewhere between 16 ounces and 24 ounces. When I'm on the road, because I travel a lot, the 16.9-ounce retail bottles are readily available. These are the common retail water bottle, which is a standard 500 milliliter or half liter, and they are convenient. You can grab them in any store. And when I'm at home, I use my bike bottles, and those are between 20 and 24 ounces. This size bottle, full of water, weighs a little bit over a pound or about 450 grams, for me, at 185 pounds, that's only like a half a percent of my body weight, and it isn't going to throw off my balance. For you, maybe you're a smaller person or you're new to carrying a bottle, start with something smaller to get used to it. They, there's that 8.5-ounce small bottle, like the ones they give you on the airline. You can try that. Or you can even just start with an empty bottle just to get used to the feel of it. And you can incrementally add fluid to it after that until you get to the point where you're used to carrying a bottle of water. So how do you carry a bottle? Well, I carry the bottle in my left hand. My theory is that I'm right side dominant. So this small weight actually balances my body mass. But this, this is probably just wishful thinking. I can switch hands as needed and often do so, especially when drinking. One of the advantages of training so much with a bottle in my hand is that I'm quite handy with it and I don't ever drop it. I carry the bottle quite loosely. I don't grip it. I cradle it with my hand. And I hold my hands close to my body to prevent over-rotation and keep good, quiet, upper body form. In theory, I try to hold my hands high and tight up by my chest 
But in practice, they tend to swing easily about halfway up my torso. The caution here is that you have to remember your high school physics when you hold a weight in your hand, like a water bottle. The force that weight exerts on you is equal to the weight times the distance of the moment arm, meaning that the further away from your center of mass that you swing the bottle, it exerts a multiple of the force. So bottom line, kids, if you're going to carry a water bottle, keep it tight to your body. Don't over-rotate or swing it. So why do I carry a bottle anyway? Well, it's really for ease of use and tactical advantage. My runs are typically in the one to two hour range, and I could probably survive these without any water, but I like to practice drinking and fueling as needed when I train. By practicing and training, I can carry a bottle in my marathons, and that gives me a tactical advantage in the race. How? Well, when I carry my own bottle, I'm able to take small swigs when needed, and this gives me a nice steady flow of hydration and nutrition instead of one big gulp at the aid station. This also allows me to bring mixtures I want for fuel. I can refill at the water stations and mix in sports drinks at the concentration I think I need based on race conditions, and it gives me an advantage of flexibility during the race. I can drink what I want when I want. I can also mix in whatever fuel I'm using to get used to it and take that on my training runs. With your own bottle, you can adjust the mixture as you like, right? You don't have to take whatever they're passing out. Another advantage in big races is that you can avoid the first one or two aid stations. This is typically where all the racers get jammed up and you can lose precious time tripping over the less practiced racers as they weave in and out of the water tables. With my own bottle, I can skip the first couple and avoid the crush until the race thins out a little. This also means that if I need something between aid stations... I can take a pull from my bottle. For instance, if I found the need to choke down a gel, or I needed to swallow an Endurolite, or I ate a, ate a bug, I can wash it down without having to wait for a water stop. It also saves the day when you get into a disorganized race that doesn't have enough aid stations or runs out of something. With my own bottle, I'm at least a little bit more self-sufficient and flexible. And that helps with my confidence, too, on, on race day. Hold on, Chris. One water bottle isn't going to get you through a marathon. Right. I've talked before about sweat rate and figuring out how much water fluid you need to take during exercise. For me, in normal room temperature conditions, I'm going to drink about 16 ounces an hour. For me, this is going to translate into five or six miles. And this conveniently, for me, means roughly a bottle an hour, give or take. In most marathons, this will get me through the first one to two aid stations. When my bottle runs out, I pull into an aid station, I get out of the way behind the tables, and refill my bottle with whatever mixture of sports drink or water I want, and this allows me to adjust the strength of my intake based on weather conditions and how my gut feels during the race. I might only fill it halfway, or I might toss it all together if the race is well-supported or if I'm sick of carrying it. In normal conditions, I'm going to refill every 10K or so, which equates to three on-course refills in a marathon. And I might skip the last refill and chuck the bottle so I can lighten the load and focus on closing. 
the bottle gives me that flexibility to adjust my tactics depending on how the race unfolds for me. So what's the advantage of a bottle over other hydration systems? There's lots of ways to carry water on a long run. You've got bottle belts, backpacks, and vests that you can wear. I have occasionally raced with a bottle belt or a hydration backpack, but honestly, only for ultra-distance events or when I know it's going to be super hot and I'm going to be going super slow. I'm not an elite runner by any definition, but when I'm trying to qualify for the Boston Marathon, I'm moving relatively quickly for me, and I find that any kind of belt or pack, it bounces around too much. It's the same reason I don't race with a phone or anything else. I want to focus on the race and not have to worry about carrying stuff. I find that the single handheld bottle is the best compromise between flexibility and comfort for me. If you're a slower runner or a different runner, uh, you may find that a pack or a belt is the right choice for you. What's a bike bottle? Ah, you've been talking about bike bottles. What's a bike bottle? A bike bottle is a type of bottle they make for cyclists that fits snugly into the bottle cage on your bike. These are typically 20 to 24 ounces, which is a fairly big bottle. They have a nipple on the top that you can pull out with your teeth when you want to drink and then whack with your hand when you want to put it back. This means you can grab a drink with one hand, especially when you're on the bike, and it's a great delivery system, very convenient. They have a wide screw-on lid instead of that narrow neck that a retail water bottle would have, and this makes it easy to refill and easy to toss a scoop of your favorite powder into. You can find them in sports stores. I usually just order them online when I'm buying other stuff for my bikes from pricepoint.com or nashbar.com, and they're like 2 to $3. And they last about a season before they start leaking too badly to use, especially if you drop them a lot or you just lose them. And in the summertime when it's hot, you can fill these with ice cubes because they're nice and wide before you uh, fill them with water, and they'll stay cold for a good 20, 30 minutes into your run. And these bottles are also wide enough you can chuck them in the dishwasher when they get icky and or, you know, they're easy to clean out in general because of that wide mouth on the top allows access. So wrapping it up or hosing it down, how you get your fluids into your body when running is up to you and what you find works for you. I like carrying a bottle and I find it to be the best compromise between flexibility and convenience. If you want to try carrying a bottle, start small. Get used to it. Make sure your form is good. There are specific running bottles that you can buy with like hand straps and other accoutrements. I prefer just a simple retail bottle when I'm on the road and a generic bike bottle while I'm at home. There are benefits to racing with a bottle that can positively impact your performance. And now for our featured interview, because we can always learn something new from others, and some people are super interesting. Matt, why don't you uh, give us the, the 200 words on who you are and what you do and why we're talking? Yeah, so I'm uh, Matthew Crean. Um, been a sort of grown up around athletics. Mum was an Olympic runner. Dad was Olympic coach. Um, and I'm here talking to you because um, I've written a graphic novel about American distance runner Steve Prefontaine. There you go. 
And I have read it, actually. I, I read it in a various places. I actually printed it out and was carrying it around with me uh, on airplanes and that and that sort of thing. Uh, so that was that was a lot of fun. And I find it interesting because running is such an emotionally powerful experience for the runners, for the participants, but it doesn't translate real well to the visual, to the storytelling medium, right? Yeah. And so I'm intrigued that the graphic novel, you know, graphic novels are so so popular right now with all the different things like The Walking Dead and all the anime and all that stuff. Uh, it seems like it might be the perfect vehicle to sort of capture the essence of the running experience. For me, I, I've been, obviously I've grown up around around running, like I say, and then sort of you know a huge fan of comic books and, and graphic novels as well. And so for me, it was sort of it was merging the, 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 that medium. Um, with you know, with the sport I love, and when you do sport, when you write sport, um, you know, or you, you watch sport, you know, the, the idea of them all is the you know the films and things. They try and get across that that emotional side of it. Um, you know, I mean, you think of you know, you think of the Rocky films and things like that. They're probably the most iconic sports films around. Um, you know, and they try and get that sort of emotional side of it to you know to the you know really that that, that underdog story really, and make make you feel for the characters and 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 follow follow him on his journey. And that, and I think that's that's what you've got to try and work into, and when writing the graphic novels, what I had to try and work into was, was really sort of tell Pre's story and, and, and his emotions and his thoughts, and because that's you know when when like you say when you run it it's, it is very emotional and it's 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 getting that it's, it's translating that into into the into the work into the book, but I think it's it's, it's also with with Pre's story it's it's it, there's so much that you can relate to as a as a runner yourself, and and, and that's why you know his story stands out to me. Because there was so much that I could I could relate to, being born years after he was ever alive and, and things like that, but still so much that I, I felt you know I had in common as, from my, the way I like to run, being the same way that he liked to run, to to sort of just the the ups and downs of life really as well. Exactly the the rhythm of it all, and in that sense, Pre's story is universal, right? There's something really compelling about it. I mean, two two motion. Pictures came out the same year, right? Yeah. yeah. Um, about Pre's story, there's something very compelling about it. What do you think is so compelling about Pre's story that it just needs to be told over and over again? And what what is it that makes that a universal, almost meme for the sport experience? Yeah, I, I think it's sort of his, his philosophy on running and how that transfers to his philosophy on life, really. You know, about sort of living it to the full. You know, racing. You know, putting everything you've got out there on the on the track, and I think that sort of carries into into everyone's life. Really, is it's it. You know, there's there's ups and downs, and there's times where you, you know you really have to you have to try your hardest. You have to do what you can to succeed, whether that is from running or whether that's you know in work or family or whatever. You know, it, you know everything's always a you know a sort of like life's a struggle really, and I think that was you know that was sort of pre pre's idea as it is, but you've got to put yourself out there you've got to really you know push yourself to you both your mind and your your, your body's sort of you know uh, physical and, and mental abilities and and i think so that's i think that's why it transfers so well to universities because everyone sort of feels that way at some point in their life and and there's some some moment that in pre-story that's you know that you can relate to and that, that captures how you're feeling really right so he had you know from what i know i, I wasn't around when pre was around running anyhow he had this drive that was almost an inner anger that he could unleash 
on the track. And what we're talking about is when he went out, it was basically either I'm, I'm going to kill myself trying, you know, I'm, I'm going to win or I'm going to kill myself trying. And I think that translates real well to runners of all ages, right? Because you always feel like if you could just leave it out there, give 100%, you know, you can walk off the the track or the or the field. You know, feeling feeling complete, right? Feeling fulfilled. Yeah. And there's some, there's something in that zeitgeist that translate universally. Yeah, I think. I mean, I, I mean, it is. That's it. You know, it's it's. You've got that mentality of. I mean, running is an individual sport anyway. I mean, yeah, we have. You know, we we can have the team competitions. We you know, in the UK, you've got the club competitions. You've got the you know collegiate um, competitions in America and things. And so there is sort of team aspects to it, but you know, at its basis, it's an individual sport, and so it's always you. It's you against yourself first and foremost, before it's you against your competitors. Um, and so there's always that that drive to really pull out, you know, to see what you can do and what you can achieve. And I think that's there's sometimes what you you, you miss with some of the, the, the you know the top runners of today and things. You know, there's Mo Farah is, is is one that I always think of as he's you know he's he's a great runner and he's won you know Olympic medals and and things like that. But when he races, it's very much a within the pack, you know, taking it on towards the end sort of sort of style of running. Um, yeah. You know, and he's never he's never been in that in that place where there's really he's really pushed himself for me anyway. I know there's I know he did it in indoors and he got, he got a world record indoors. Um but I think in general, like the, for the five thousand and the ten thousand, something where he's gone out and really, you know, pushed himself to see exactly what he could run, can he you know, because the world records are still, you know, bikinis and, and things like that and so it's in my mind it's Yes, he's, he's won the Olympic medals and things like that, but could he push himself to break the world record and uh, you know and be as good as, as the likes of, of Bikili and, and you know Haile uh, Gabriel Selassie and, and those other world record holders? And it's I think pre was was that mindset of, of really going out there and, and putting everything on the line and seeing exactly what you could achieve and, and you're not holding anything back. So you know the end of life realistically, there's no regrets there. There's, there's you know you you've done everything you you could you could possibly achieve, and so. I think it's that mentality, really, that you know, that, that carries over into, into you know, any any runner and any distance runner is, is you always want to know exactly what you could do and, and make sure you've you've done everything you can to to achieve that. Right. So when you're putting together this graphic novel, you know, you start with the story, and it's a pretty well known story, with a lot of good sort of vignettes to it that you can draw from, and then you have to sort of sample that to say which of these are going to translate into story points on my storyboard, right? And, you, and you've got your, you lay out your storyboard. But then there's a lot you can work with. You can work with the shading, with the size of the panel, with the sequence of the panels. So you did a lot in there, I noticed, with darker shading yeah. for some of the darker moments. You know, it reminds me of like a Batman comic where he's got one of those darker moments, you know. And also the sequence of frames where you're showing motion. Right, like yeah. in a race, yeah. to to keep that flow, that sort of rapid flow, which is is what the race is. It builds slowly and then closes rapidly. So, I mean, obviously you did that on purpose, but talk to some of the the way you constructed this novel to tell that story. Yeah, so I mean, growing up around athletics, that was you know that's that's my my true love and my and my true passion. And so you know, obviously I I, I didn't illustrate the book. I had a, an art team that, that worked on that and. Their, their background wasn't in athletics, it wasn't in running. It was difficult in that sense to try and, you know, I had to get across exactly what I was thinking and the way I wanted to write it because it, writing a comic is, is 
it's similar to maybe a, a film script sort of way is you've got to write you know the panels what you want in that panel describe the panel and then you add the commentary and the voices and things like that to it so writing it obviously I'm, I'm talking to people that don't know about running they don't they, you know they don't participate they you know they, it's not really a sport they, they um, watch or anything like that to sort of um, and trying to get across these scenes so I mean I was sending across lots of pictures there's lots of pictures of Pre so they get how he's running you know his style and how he looked when he ran but lots of pictures of sort of uh, of myself running sort of 5,000 meter races you know showing the pack how a 5,000 meter sort of runs out runs and you know the pack people in the pack and you know pushing and shoving and things like that and just trying to illustrate the the imagery of, of, of how races unfold so obviously knowing knowing the sport myself so that when it comes to the pacing it was a lot about the writing and 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 telling the artists, for most, for a lot of it, I would give the artists free reign on how the panels look and sort of let them, you know, sort of make sure the pages flowed and, and things like that from an artistic side. Um, but for, for races and things like that was really where I, I, I penciled out exactly how I wanted those pages to look and to get that pacing right. My degree is in sports science as well, so I know, so, you know, gate analysis and, and things like that. Right. And so I wanted, so when there's a, it's the end of the, well, Page nine, I think, is a panel where you see the track and then it's it's blocked out as sort of um, a little bit of a, of a gate analysis from the side view, a pre's leg yeah. motion, and it, it's you know the clock's ticking down and it's it's I mean it's quite a lot of panels really for a for a comic page and um, you know most comics but you know most pages usually have maybe seven or so panels maximum um, and and that's th- it's got thirteen on in total but it sort of it breaks down that gate cycle as it goes along and that was really key to work in that science to it as well a little bit and, and then that motion the biomechanics of it all and which you know which in, in the end sort of helps a bit with the pacing as well and so it was it's taking the different aspects of it and, and obviously really filling it with with the love of and, and the knowledge that i have of, of the sport yeah and i think i think you did a good job with that i mean that's something you notice in other you know publications is that they always get the gate wrong right and they always get the musculature of the legs wrong and I think that's something that you did well, especially that musculature of the of the quads, because these guys are really lean, but they're really strong, and they're really well defined in certain places. So yeah, um, I think you did that well. Like I said, there's a lot of darker spots in it because there's darker spots in the story, right? Yeah. And did you intentionally, you know, shade it that way as the story gets darker? Yes. Yeah, like some, some some even had the you know the rain, right? Yeah. Yeah, definitely. The, the the use of weather and things like that is, is you know a real sort of. I mean, you see it in films. You know, every every funeral you see in a film is usually pouring down with rain or a thunderstorm or something like that. And it's you know it's another way of adding that that emotional sort of state to it, to you know to to the observer or to the reader. So that use was really intended to sort of make sure it it, it drew that. I mean, for the, like the, the Munich Olympics, I obviously you know the, the start of that, I tried to I wanted the artist to to use sort of brighter colours and things and. The ceremony, you know, the, the opening ceremony, the fireworks, and then different events, you know, really sort of make it a bit brighter and, and you know, show that it's a, you know, it's a, it's a real celebration, it's a real worldwide event that was celebrated and, and, and things like that. And then obviously you then go into the Munich massacre, and so you, people, you know, if you know the history of it, you know that's coming, you know that's that's going to be part of it. Um, but I wanted that bright brightness and, and those sort of lighter colours at, at the start that to really throw you off a little bit to make you forget that that was going to be coming up to make you you may you you know you focused on the the olympics and you're enjoying the the atmosphere that sort of that page is, is giving you and, and things and then then to then bring you back 
you know, down to the to the drama and the and the and the you know the tragedy that was the, the Munich massacre and and I mean that's the same you know towards the end of the book as well with Bree's death you know it's it's sort of that that celebration moments of the um of the the, the Finnish tour and things like that and and, and pre you know beating the, the AAU in in in, in getting them to uh, agree to, to that tour and things and it's you know it really is sort of a celebration and then and then it's and then it's uh, you know bring you back to reality and that that tragedy of his death and it's it is that up and down journey really and it's you know I wanted to make sure the the artwork sort of showed that and and that was I mean I know I've had uh, there's been a couple of reviews and people have picked it there's a chapter in the book where where I have a different set of artists working on it. I did that one was because we were massively behind deadline on the book <laughs> because we'd had a, a volcanic eruption in Java where the main artist is from and it had destroyed his house and things like that and understandably you know put us back uh, near enough a year behind deadline because of that but also because I felt that chapter sort of lent itself to having a different artist on board because of that moment in Pree's life where it's after the Munich Olympics, it's after he's finished Oregon University, he was, you know, he's sort of lost really, he's on his own and, and sort of confused of what to do and, you know, how to, whether running is what he, you know, what he should be staying and doing or should he be going out and getting a job and, and, and you know, working, having a, a family and things like that. And so it was, that was very much, I felt it lent itself to a different artist and, I mean, it, it, obviously, it's the reader's opinion, and that's completely fair. You know, you're always going to be whether you feel it was right or not. But that was my reasoning behind it anyway. Was because one, it helped speed us back up, and two, because it, I felt it lent it to to giving a a less sort of because it's that chapter as well is, is less detailed in the artwork. It's, it's not as specific. It's not as as, as fine tuned as the rest of it. And and that was for me that was trying to represent that sort of loss and that confusion in Pre's in Pre's own life and. You know, the, yeah. the lack of detail in what he was going to do. Yeah, I mean, it's such a complex story, such a complex character that, you know, you were you were aiming, uh, you were taking on a big job there. That's very difficult to capture all that stuff. Now, tell me, when you were looking to do this, is there a history of graphics or comics around sport? I mean, in over the last, you know, 50 or 60 years, as... Was there ever a time when this was a a thing? You know, yeah. like like you know, back in the early 1900s, there were sports novels for boys, right? That would follow a character, you know, and and those were the pulp pulp fiction novels. Was there a certain a certain same thing with the comics? Yeah, I mean, there was you know, especially I mean, definitely over in the UK, and there, there were some over in the USA. Um, I mean, there was Alf Tuff at the top of the track, mm-hmm. which was sort of published. I think the 50s started in the 50s, ran to 89 in sort of the um, the Victor and, and and things like that. Um, and he was he was a you know a runner, um, quite a lot like a, a Prefontaine really. I mean he was obviously he was he was fictional, but he was he was a, a northern British runner, coal mining sort of towns and things like that. Um, rugged and tough, went out there, put himself on the line, everything. Very much a, a you know a fictional Prefontaine really. I helped. Relaunched that character back in, in 2014 in, in Athletics Weekly magazine as a, as a single sort of one-page one-page story, which which was really useful in, in helping me finish off my writing of, of, of the um, the art of running, um, because it was obviously a similar sort of characterization, but it but writing as a, a single page, a comic in a single page, which needed to have a, a beginning, a middle, and an end all in in, in that one page was it was quite a, it's, it's quite a challenge. 
but then there's you know there was there was sort of soccer comics as well in the UK and things and the, the Roy of the Rovers and, and things like that. And so there's there's been a history in the UK back in you know back in sort of the 50s and, and things like that. But realistically, sport now it's 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 sort of it doesn't really appear much in comics. I know the likes of Marvel comics used to do you know one-off specials for the um, the NBA and, and things like that, but nothing nothing really serious and nothing that they, they really invested a lot of, of time in. And, and for me, it was, it's a weird thing because I, I, I feel like sport is, is a perfect sort of, you know, story for, for a comic. I think you've got to get it, you've got to get it right. And I think that the writer needs to know the sport. I don't think I could write, you know, a, a football comic or anything like that because it's not the sport I, I know enough, but I think there's writers out there that probably could. Um, and I think, cause I think it's that, it's, it's that working of, the knowledge of the sport itself and then being able to craft the story behind that to, to fit into it. Only because I think, you know, you see on you see in the, the cinemas and in the film and TV, you know, sports, when, they, when they're done right and they, they've got someone knowledgeable behind it, you know, generally end up with, you know, Oscar nominations and, and things like that. They're, you know, they're, they're not the blockbuster films, but they're, you know, they're quite, you know, artsy and, and they're seen as, as, you know, well done sort of... Um, films you know scripts and characterization and things like that so and i feel comic books being that the the idea of comics is, is sequential art um you know i mean that's the foundation of, of, of a comic book that that sport being at its very its very basic level is, is sequential you know it's, it's a pattern of movements that you put together to create create the you know the movement you know running being its gate and um, you know if you're talking you know the javelin and the discus, or you know long jump or something. They're all they're all movements and sequences you put together to create that full. Um, yeah, that's the same for you know any other sport. You know. Yeah, and the, and they have natural story arcs built into them because you've got the beginning, middle, and end. Yeah. Yeah. So I guess that that's why the Rocky uh, story was so popular, yeah. right? It's the same. It's a hero's journey, right? Someone starts from a humble beginning. They have a mentor. And then they overcome their challenges and are successful, right? So yeah. it's the classic hero's journey. Yeah. So it should have universal appeal. It's the, the trueness of the stories as well, really. You know, I mean, obviously, pre-story is, is based completely on a on a true story, and there's you know many other aspects of, of, of films that you know, obviously, Rocky isn't you know is is meant is, is fictional, but it's you know there's a lot of sort of true stories built into that and behind it, and behind the, the you know base level of it anyway. Yeah, so it's super interesting. What's the the future hold? You gonna tackle something else? Yeah, I mean, I'm I'm working on um, an anthology at the moment, more as a more as the publisher for it. Um, working with a, a team a team of artists from and writers from all over the world, and that's that's um, sort of called the celebration of life. That's telling sort of stories of, of people that have um, suffered and, and dealt with cancer, um, and really sort of celebrating those those really sort of you know, happy, cheerful moments in, in those what are really people's darkest hours. So we're, we're doing that, and that's all, all the money from the sales of that event. When it when it's done, they're going to go to um, a cancer charity that's that's been picked by the um, the art team and and the the people who backed it on on Kickstarter. Then uh, the other the other book I'm I'm currently um, starting to work on at the moment is a is a bit of a, a science fiction book mi- mixed with uh, mixed with sport and, and the Olympics and things like that, which. Yeah, yeah, that sounds cool. Yeah, so that's that's obviously you know um, overpopulation and, and things like that, and, and and the the idea of sport being you know athletes and things being here you know people's heroes, and but obviously the drugs you know 
a lot of stuff going on about drugs at the moment. You know, we've had Lance Armstrong and there's obviously the accusations against um, Salazar and, and, and the, the Nicaraguan project at the moment going on. That sort of idea of if he got rid of, they scrapped the Olympics and, and redid it with, a, you know, completely, you know, drugs are fine to take and you're creating these, these athletes on, you know, through through drug use and then building onto sort of genetics and, and bioengineering and, you know, robots <laughs> and, like and everything. So, so yeah, it's, it, it's a, the, the, the mapping of that world that that's going to be set has, has been uh, really good fun and is, is, is something I've really wanted to start, you know, get into because I've written, I've written real sort of, you know, sports sort of comics, and I want to start to merge that with the with the comics that you know I enjoy reading. You know, from Marvel and DC of that, you know, a little bit, uh, you know, that fictional world and that science fiction and things. So that's sure, uh, sure. So it's, yeah, so you have to create a universe, um, and then then you put those characters in that universe and create stories. Yeah, it's, it's fascinating. It's very very uh, very good. People want to go out and uh, look at this or, or uh, procure this. Where do they go? Yeah, so um, you can get it. Um, you can order it in print and digital uh, copy, which you can use on um, you know tablets and phones and computers and things like that. Um, at um, Matt Korean Comics, that's uh, com. It'll also soon be available in the Kindle store um, on Amazon. Okay. Digitally as well. Okay, and I'll put those links. You just send me the links, and I'll put them in the uh, in the notes. Yeah, no problem. All right. So this is cool. Yeah. Uh, we've uh, we've opened up a whole Pandora's box of creative ideas here. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, I'd love to. There's, there's plenty of athletes out there. I'd love to have a go at writing their stories as well. So. <laughs> yeah. All right. So um, I'll let you go. Thanks for taking the time today, and thanks for sharing the art of running. That's what it's called, right? Yeah. The art of running. Yeah. Yeah. Thanks. Thanks for sharing that with me. No, no I appreciate it. No worries. I'm glad glad you enjoyed it. All right. Cheers. No, no worries. Take care. Sometimes it takes a third party to tell us what we already know. The Massachusetts Triathlon Olympic Distance Tri Race Report. Now, it's common knowledge that elite athletes use visualization to prepare for big events. And in the spirit of that practice, I'm going to share with you how I expect to win my age group in the Olympic distance triathlon that I'm competing in this upcoming weekend. I arrive at my race well-rested and strong in the morning. It's a beautiful day. The lake is calm and cold. I get my gear set up in the transition area. I rack my bike and squeeze into my wetsuit. There's 15 other guys in my age group. The top five of them are what you'd expect in a local triathlon. They are a collection of tightly wrapped lawyers and doctors, maybe ex-Olympic hopefuls, Cat 1, Cat 2 riders with expensive bikes and six-pack abs, the kind of guys who come early with their training stand to spin out for a couple hours because the race isn't quite long enough for them. These top five guys start with the first wave. They're in the water and off with a large amount of fervent splashing. The two ex-Olympic hopefuls pull away from the pack, but in doing so gain the attention of something lurking in the shallows. They are almost out of the water, these two top studs, when they are taken out by a 30-foot-long man-eating crocodile like in that movie Lake Placid. Meanwhile, I'm still standing on the banks of the lake waiting for my age group to be called. Meanwhile, the next three semi-pro guys in my age group are churning through the slightly reddish water, and they're making good time. 
they race by what looks like a fat, happy crocodile snoozing in the mud. But they themselves are not out of the weeds. Before they can make the beach, they are set upon by a school of hungry prehistoric piranhas, like in that movie Piranha. Meanwhile, it's unfortunate, but as my wave moves to the shore, right behind the 50 to 60-year-old women, I've moved up to 10th place. With the air horn, we're off, and the rest of the pack pulls away into the murky lake, kicking me several times in the head before separating. It's just me and some other guys zigzagging around the lake, trying not to be overtaken by the 70 to 80-year-old women. Meanwhile, the second five guys of my age group are making good time. They swim past the napping croc, a school of lazy, satisfied, prehistoric piranha guarding a pile of bones in the bottom, and exit the water. They are efficient in transition and hop on their bikes, mostly nice $8,000 tri-bikes with $2,000 disc rims for that extra .032 seconds of speed and $500 teardrop helmets that carve the wind like a hot knife through butter. They sprint down the road like a Tour de France time trial. Meanwhile, in the lake, there's three guys in the water ahead of me and the other guy in my age group. We're swimming strong, but we get passed by the 80- to 90-year-old women. The three guys in front of us swim past the croc, past the piranha, and out of the water and swiftly gain transition one. Meanwhile, the five guys in the lead who had not been dismembered or eaten are now at the 10-mile mark of the bike course, cruising along in their teardrop helmets and tri-bikes with special airflow-optimized water bottles, Unfortunately for them, they are set upon by a pack of wild dogs like in that movie The Breed and are reduced to an ugly stain on the pavement. Now it's just five of us, the three age groupers on their bikes and me and that other guy bringing up the rear. Meanwhile, the three remaining age groupers are on the bike course after avoiding the man-eating crocodile, the hungry piranha, and the wild dogs. They are riding strong, spinning away, and chewing up road like pros. Meanwhile, me and that other guy have swum past the sleeping crocodile, the fat homicidal fish, and are just now climbing out of the water. I can see he's been slowed down by wearing a Tarzan-style bathing suit like Ferris Bueller wore in the movie Ferris Bueller's Day Off. He beats me into transition because I'm now hopelessly entrapped in my wetsuit like a fly in a neoprene spider web. The other guy jumps onto his bike, which turns out is a Barbie bike he borrowed from his niece with the banana seat, chopper handlebars, and the pink tassels coming out of the hand grips. He thought he had signed up for a 5K road race. When he found out it was an Olympic distance try, he decided what the heck and borrowed a bike and gave it a try. Meanwhile, the three guys left in front have completed the bike. They jump into their shoes, trying not to laugh at me, still on the beach, being cut out of my wetsuit by emergency technicians. And they are off, looking strong, one, two, three, down the road. After ten minutes of struggle and near obfuscation, I'm out of my wetsuit and on to Fujisan for the 22-mile bike. Now we'll make up some time on Mr. Barbie Bike. Meanwhile... And unfortunately, for the three age groupers in the front, they are set upon by a genetically engineered saber-toothed tiger escaped from an experimental gene splicing facility like in the movie Sabretooth and carried into the forest to be consumed later at the big cat's leisure. Now it's just me and Mr. Barbie Bike. 
I would have caught him if I hadn't got a little lost, because the course volunteers had decided no one could swim that slowly, thought the race was over, and went home. Finally, I find my way back onto the course and into transition two, missing the other guy by five minutes. I'm into my hokas, and the game is on. I work my way up through the pack. I pass the 90-year-olds. I pass the 80-year-olds. And I even begin to pass the 70-year-olds. I'm reeling them in now. I've got my good form on with my hips forward and my shoulders high. I'm flying down the course, passing them like they're traffic cones in a parking lot. Just as I'm coming into the last stretch, I see the other guy up ahead. I've got him in my sights, but I'm running out of race course. I put a kick on, but it looks like he's going to beat me into the finish chute that is set up on the beach. But just as he's about to finish, he gets tripped up by a rogue sandworm like the one that tried to get Kevin Bacon in the movie Tremors, and then a bunch of other people in Tremors 2, Tremors 3, and explained in the original story prequel Tremors 4, The Legend Begins. I have a full head of steam, and adroitly vault his prone body to blast through the chute. And that's how I win my age group, next weekend in my Olympic distance triathlon. Okay, now we're going to move you towards the exit, please. Okay, my friends, that's it. Nothing left to do now except gracefully slink towards the exit and hope nobody notices that we split our pants laughing out loud at the antics from episode 4-316 of the Run Run Live podcast. I've got that triathlon this weekend and I'm not worried about it. Assuming I can avoid all the B-movie obstacles and pitfalls, it should be fun. Forecasts are calling for a hot day, but even at my leisurely pace, I should be back in the barn by 10 a.m. or so. I have Fujisan all cleaned up and ready to go. I bought a new helmet and have so far avoided bashing my head on anything. And after this race, I was going to ride the Hampshire 100, but my mountain bike buddies aren't doing it, uh, so I may pass. And after that, all I've got left is the epic road trip to the Hood to Coast in Portland at the end of August. I'm still offering, pay attention now, I'm still offering... A size large, brand new Team Hoyt Adidas jacket. It's got a price tag on it of 65 bucks. Still on it. The rules of the game are if you contribute some amount, let's say more than $50, to my Hood to Coast cancer charity, you get to win the jacket. So far, your odds are very good. Check the show notes for a picture. It's a super nice jacket. It's black. It's got a picture of Rick and Dick on it says 2015 Boston Marathon. It's something. Find the links in the show notes to contribute to the uh, cancer cause. It's, uh, it's, a, it's a long URL. On the domestic front, switching gears, my garden is it's, – it's having its ups and downs. It looks like I'm going to get hundreds, maybe thousands of pounds of potatoes from my potato box. And I've got lots of beans I've got a great crop of berries, and I'm going to get some apples because I managed to prune and spray this year. But my tomatoes and squash, they're not doing very well, which is a disappointment. And I've got a rodent problem, not the chipmunks, not the rabbits. I've got a population explosion of woodchucks. They've eaten all my parsley and lettuce and even snacked on some of my cilantro. And the buggers can climb, unlike the rabbits. So fences don't keep them out. And they're quite brazen. I've seen the mama and several babies hanging around the yard. 
I move my remaining parsley pot up onto my back deck and they climb the stairs to get to it. So I decided it was time to bring the fight to them. First, my wife and I had some fun, since it is 4th of July, throwing smoke bombs down their holes in the front yard, which, although I'm sure is quite useless, creates quite a show and makes you feel like you're doing something. I brought out the big have-a-heart trap and baited it with apples. And I've caught two of the young ones so far, and a gray squirrel. And you may ask, what do you do with them when you trap them? Well, I know it's bad karma, but I was going to drown them in my water barrel. I mean, I'm a tough guy, right? I can do this. I've watched several Al Pacino movies. But when I tried that, the trap was about four inches too long, so instead I just gave the critter a nice refreshing bath as it clung to the top of the cage looking at me. So now, as we all know, it's illegal to transport and release wild animals. But if said wild animal just happened to be taking a relaxing ride in the back of my truck for, you know, purely enjoyment purposes, and the cage just happened to be open when I parked at the railhead, the trailhead for my mountain bike ride, and that hypothetical wild animal chose to exit said cage and said truck at that point in time, well, that's more a case of free will in action than unlawful redistribution of gophers. I'm going to have to talk to that old border collie that lives in my house about scaring these critters off. He's fallen down on the job. Well, it's getting late, and I've spent too much time on this today. I've got to go grocery shopping. i got to pick up my mountain bike from the repair shop. And don't forget to say yes to adventure and sign up for the Wapak Trail Race this year on September 6th at the Windblown Ski Area in New Whipswich, New Hampshire. Or maybe it's Ipswich, New Hampshire. I don't know, someplace in New Hampshire. And join me for some mountain running smackdown fun. Links are in the show notes. You remember Bruce, Bruce Van Horn from a couple episodes ago? Well, I was listening to him recently and he did this bit about how he loves everyone. Bruce is kind of out there. And he tells people every time they meet someone new to think in their heads, I love you. And it will force you to have empathy for that person in that interaction. Well, being from the Northeast, we're not a very touchy-feely culture up here. And the thought of telling random people, I love you, cracked me up. But you know what? I'm a gamer. So I tried it. I tried this with some of my interactions during the day, and you know what? It works for me, but not for the reason it works for Bruce. It totally changes the interaction for me, not because I love anybody, but the process of thinking it is just so culturally absurd, it makes me laugh internally, which breaks me out of my frame, which pulls me into the interaction in a new light. It's the equivalent of imagining everyone you meet with bunny ears. It breaks your frame and allows you to approach the interaction unbiased. So give that a try, but don't try to hug me, and I'll see you out there. And then he thought that he just couldn't die. So Ned, he laughed so hard it made him cry. I feel strong. I ran a nice two-hour trial. Trial. Uh, trial. I always spell trail as trial. <laughs> That's funny. Dog hair everywhere. <laughs>